For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we are gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Father, we are again just grateful for your goodness to us. Sunday after Sunday, we come here able to just preach the word and to sit under the word. And so we ask you now that you will uh, be with us during just this brief time that we have together. May you soften our hearts. May you take away any distractions. May you, Lord, just be with us and speak to us through your word. Humble my heart, and we just pray now, Lord, that you will be glorified in all that's, uh, that's going to be said. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as Pastor Rod mentioned a couple weeks ago, the theme, the overall theme of 1 Thessalonians is living in the light of his coming. And I think that title is there in your bulletin, living in the light of his coming. And so I had some time to think about the theme in in our text this morning in chapter 2. And so if I were to summarize our passage this morning, it would sort of follow the overall theme. And I would actually call it leading in light of his coming. So I would just replace that word, living, and I would say leading in light of his coming. And so many of us have probably experienced various forms of leadership really in the life of the church, Um, whether it's here at Gateway or or someplace else, we've probably had our fair share of sitting under various pastors and or elders and or leadership teams. Uh, And of course, our experiences could be good and bad, uh, to say the least, Um, But let me submit to you that whatever you've experienced in the past, good or bad, you're not alone. Uh, In preparation uh, of this passage, it's sort of allowed me to think about really our own leadership here at Gateway and really just our own conduct in light of the church. Uh, Now, let me just submit to you, we are not perfect. Um, We try to lead uh, as the Bible tells us to lead. And so we, again, we are just sitting under a leadership by God's grace, trying to serve uh, the flock. And so I want us to think of this text in terms of leadership, 
but also in terms of conduct, and more on this later. Uh, and some of you might be saying, well, I'm not a leader. Um, but I want us to, to really think about how we see ourselves in the context of the Christian life, the church, our community, or even the workplace. We are, in, in one sense, we are leading our homes, uh, or some of us are probably leading a ministry in the church, whether you're teaching Sunday school, or you're leading a men's or women's Bible study, uh, or other things that you guys are involved in. We are leading in one sense. Um, well, so whether you're leading something now or in the future, I really want us to see how we should live as we look at Paul's conduct in ministry. It's what I call gospel-centered conduct in light of leading. Gospel-centered conduct in light of leading. So today in our passage, we naturally pick up where Rod left off. So, but before we jump right in, I want us to sort of take a step back and see why Paul is addressing his own conduct and leadership in ministry. Now, if you're in your Bibles and you're in first in, in you're in First Thessalonians, I want us to look at verse five of chapter one. Verse five of chapter one. Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we've proved to be among you for your sake. And I read this verse because I think it gives us a better context of what Paul is addressing. That last phrase, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The question is, what men did they prove to be? What men did Paul and Silas and others prove to be? The short answer may seem like Paul is just defending himself according to our passage, which he is. Okay, he's defending himself. And again, more on that later. Um, but Paul is not only defending himself, but he's also setting an example of what true Christian conduct looks like in light of assumed accusations against him. Okay, let me say that again. Paul's not only defending himself, but setting an example for what true Christian conduct looks like in light of some assumed accusations against him. In other words, Paul is addressing how we should live as Christians. And so the idea is twofold here. As we approach our, our passage, he's defending himself and the leaders, but he's also showing how leaders should act, okay? It's twofold. He's defending himself, right? And he's also showing how leaders should act. So the focal point, again, I want us to look at um, verse 12. Verse 12, the, the, the latter half of verse 12 of chapter two in our passage. Let me read it for you. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, I'm reading that verse because I, I want us to sort of let that verse carry us as we go through the first 11 verses in chapter two, okay? I want it to be sort of in the background in our heads, and then, of course, I will go through it at the end. So again, I'm gonna walk us through the first 11 verses, and then I'm gonna conclude with verse 12. Now, I found John Stott's commentary on this passage very helpful, and I think it gives us a better context to what, we're, what Paul's addressing, okay? Um, now, remember, Paul did not only just pen this letter for the sake of encouragement, which it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great encouragement to the church in Thessalonica, but as I've been mentioning, Paul is addressing some accusations against him. 
and his ministry after he left Thessalonica, okay? So that's why he's writing this as well. So let me, I put John Stott's, uh, give me one second here. I put John Stott's, uh, oh, sorry, let me, let me head back and give you the proposition. You guys still have that proposition? So um, again, I'm piggybacking off of uh, Rod's sort of proposition last week. And so Rod put three marks of a healthy church. I'm actually gonna include that here and say my aim this morning is three marks of a healthy leader. Three marks of a healthy leader. That's my aim, that's our proposition, and I will give you those three marks through the first 11 verses of our text. And so again, as I mentioned, uh, let me go ahead and read John Stott's uh, commentary here. Again, it helps us give a context. Uh, He wants us to sort of read it in reverse. Okay, he challenges us to read it in reverse to see what Paul is defending himself from. Reading, Paul's critics took full advantage of his sudden disappearance in order to undermine his authority and his gospel. They determined to discredit him, so they launched a malicious sneer campaign by studying Paul's self-defense. It is possible for us to reconstruct their slanders. Now, I'm gonna read it from the perspective of his accusers, starting with, he ran away, they sneered, and he hasn't been seen or heard since. Obviously, he's insincere. Impelled by the basis of motives, he's just one of those many phony teachers who tramp up and down the Ignatius way. In a word, he's a charlatan. He's in his job only for what he can get out of it. In terms of money, prestige, or power, So when opposition arose and he found himself in personal danger, he took to his heels and ran. And he doesn't care about you, Thessalonian disciples of his. He abandoned you. He's much more concerned about his own skin than your welfare. In reading this, I think, again, it gives us a a better context to to why Paul writes to the beloved church in Thessalonica. And so in his loving words, he's also going to defend himself. He writes with a code of conduct for leaders. And it starts with what I call Paul's defense to lead with boldness. Paul's defense to lead with boldness. Look at verse one. For you yourselves know, brothers, and that word you is really emphatic in the Greek. It's, it's, it's weighty. So Paul calls on his readers to remember the facts of his visit to them remember the facts of his visit to the first he reminds the church in Thessalonica of his courageous ministry his courageous ministry again in reading this you have to see through the accusations look at verse 1 once again for you yourselves know brothers that are coming to you was not in vain Paul is saying we came to you with a purpose and that purpose was for us to minister the gospel It was not in vain. In other words, it was not without result. And the uh, the church had to know this because from the very beginning and looking at the letter as a whole, this was a healthy church. Rod talked about about that last week. Uh, The results of the gospel ministry, they are very plain for us to see um, and as Paul was receiving the reports of them. And we we read that in, in chapter one, verses five to eight. Right? The gospel ministry was bearing fruit in Thessalonica. It was not failing. In fact, it was thriving. And there were results for, for people to see. The church was growing. However, in facing results of a fruitful ministry, 
Paul and his crew, Silas and others, they also faced persecution. They also faced persecution. Look at verse 2. Just pointing at the words. Look at the persecution. It says, I'm just highlighting these words. He suffered. He was shamefully treated. He was in the midst of much conflict. Okay? And so reading it in reverse, we see how he's being blamed. You could assume that his accusers were probably trying to charge him of running out of town, as Stott's commentary mentioned, meaning he was trying to avoid suffering. He was trying to avoid persecution, but Paul says otherwise. Did they avoid suffering? Did Paul avoid suffering in silence? Did they avoid suffering? Well, let me read to you in Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas were in Philippi. And here's what happens. I'm going to read chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, it doesn't sound like they were avoiding suffering. And when they had brought them to the, to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are, lawful, that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, did they avoid suffering? No. In Acts 17, we find that their ministry moved to Thessalonica, right? So after they, they sort of faced um, the, the suffering in Philippi, they continued on in ministry. And so they faced opposition, but poor Jason got dragged out. They were able to escape, but Jason got dragged out. And so we could conc conclude that Paul did not try to avoid suffering, he suffered in Philippi again, and then he, he continued on in ministry in Thessalonica. But notice this, okay? In our text, Paul wasn't just standing his ground for the sake of himself. He wasn't just standing for, for you know, his ground for the sake of himself. Meaning he wasn't saying, well, look at me. I, 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 I suffered. I was treated shamefully. I encountered much conflict, etc." There was a reason why he stood his ground, and it's in our text what I call a courageous conviction in verse 2, a courageous conviction. Reading in verse 2, we, Paul and the leaders, had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. So the only reason Paul had a courageous ministry in standing firm in the face of suffering is because he had a conviction to declare the gospel of God. That's the ground he was standing on, not himself. So Paul didn't run away, as his accusers were probably saying. He led with boldness because of his belief in the gospel. His ministry was marked by fierce persecution and gospel suffering, and he faced suffering head on. So again, the main thing that drove Paul to stand his ground in the face of persecution is to see people, in our case, the church, be convicted with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what compelled him to keep going in ministry, was the gospel. 
So the question for us as a church is, how does that type of boldness look in our lives in the context of gateway? Now, we, we might not necessarily be uh, persecuted here and, and dragged out of El Rancho because of a men's breakfast. We'll probably be dragged out because of the food, but in other cases, we're not facing that same type of persecution. But the question is for us, is when our backs are against the wall, whether in our workplaces or at home or with family and friends, will we stand bold in standing on our convictions of the gospel, just like Paul did? And so this is a challenge for us, but it's also a challenge to think about our leaders here at Gateway, pastors, elders, or in other ministries that we know, because other people are being persecuted around the world. And so we need to pray, we need to continually kind of seek them and pray for them and care for them, our leaders who are being persecuted for the sake of his name. Will you run or will you stay during conflict? The Apostle Paul led with boldness through gospel conviction. That's what drove him to continue on. Next, we find that Paul not only led with boldness, but he led with authenticity. He led with authenticity. Now again, going back to Stott's commentary, it's safe to assume that Paul is being accused of deception in his ministry. He's being accused of deception in his ministry. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to, what's the word there? To deceive. In other words, Paul is saying, the message you receive from me is not a message to deceive the church, but it's a pure message brought about what I call by authentic faith, authentic faith. Look at verse four. But just as we have been proved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul's aim was to please God and God alone. And in order for his aim to be so pure in pleasing God, he'd had to have authentic faith. Authentic faith. An authentic Christian requires authentic faith. Faith, And so the question is, what is authentic faith? What is authentic faith? Now, this is, I have a long list ahead of us, and you could always copy it down later, but I'm going to go through it. According to John MacArthur, authentic faith includes a love for God, a love for God. Do we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind? Authentic faith is a repentance from sin, are we constantly turning from sin? Authentic faith is genuine humility. It's a posture of worship toward him. Authentic faith includes a devotion to God's glory. And I'm gonna talk about this more at the end. It's a devotion to God's glory. Authentic faith is prayer includes prayer. Are we a praying church? Are we praying Christians? Are we praying without ceasing? Authentic faith includes a selfless love, a selfless love. We're thinking sort of less of ourselves, but thinking more about the church. We're thinking of ourselves less and thinking more about the church. 
Authentic faith is separation from the world. Separation from the world. In Colossians 3, 1, it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, it says to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Authentic faith is spiritual growth. Includes spiritual growth. Are we continually learning? Are we growing? Are we reading our Bibles? Again, very practical, but these are questions to look at our faith and say, look, is my faith real? Lastly, authentic faith requires obedience. Requires obedience. And the Apostle Paul really kind of emulated all these sort of topics of uh, authentic faith. So to summarize, authentic faith is believing the message of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and seeking to know, apply, and proclaim that very message. Authentic faith is a trust or belief in God and his promises, and therefore seeks to live it out. Let me hammer it again. Authentic faith is when a person is absolutely gripped by the hand of God so that when tested through fiery trials, the only result is praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 1.7. Paul was a man of authentic faith, although he was accused, really, of being a fake person. And so Paul reminds them that in his bold, bold proclamation of the gospel, he does it, out of an authentic attempt to please God and not men. Not only do we see Paul's authentic faith, but we see his authentic character, his authentic character. Look at verse five. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, we're not trying to gain something from you through our ministry, right? Look at his character. I mean, they could have made demands because of their status as apostles. And Paul says, look, I don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. They doesn't need that because their confidence really is not in man. They're not trying to please man. They're trying to please God. That is a mark of authentic character, is someone who's trying to please God and no one else. In other words, he lived for an audience of one. He wasn't seeking to please man, again, but to please God, and he wanted God's approval more than anything else. The accusation against Paul was that not only was he doing this for himself, but Paul responds, look, look at my life. I mean, we could see his life through Acts and through all the epistles, Look at his life, look at his faith, look at his character and how he served the churches in Acts. It's all selfless. And so some questions for us to ponder this morning is, do we desire to have an authentic character by having an authentic faith? Do we desire to have an authentic character by having an authentic faith? I mean, what happens when no one is looking at you? What happens when the crowds are away and your family's away? How do you act? Are you living by faith alone with an authentic character? And so the question is, who are you this morning? Do you come Sunday after Sunday seeking God with all your heart, soul, and mind, or are you just forced to come here? 
Do you come saying, I am broken, I am in need of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you just going through the motions? Or are you trying to fake your way through the Christian life? Now, I, I could probably speak to some of you, but let me speak to some of the young people. It's easy to go to a Christian school, to be raised in a Christian family, and to know all the Christianese language. And I say this because I grew up in a Christian school with Christian friends who lived with Christian families, but never sought to live a life that pleased God. And so with sincere love, let this be really a warning for you. I want you to look at Paul who is accused of inauthentic faith. And so you might not be accused or attacked in the same way Paul was, but if we have authentic faith and authentic character, people will notice sometimes we will be persecuted. Sometimes people will talk down to us. The Apostle Paul lived a life of authentic Christianity, which brought a number of accusers against him. He led with authenticity. His conduct was sincere. And third, we find that Paul led with love. Paul led with love. Verses 7 to 11. The first thing we find is Paul had a selfless love. Pay attention to the imagery in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Those are gentle words. I mean, Paul loved this church. He had a great affection for them. And this is no small thing, okay? I want us to think about this. Paul loving the church and talking this way to the church is no small thing. Because if you understand the bigger context of Paul's life, you will actually find how amazing this is. Here's why I say this. The apostle Paul, formerly Saul, once persecuted Christians. He hated the church. In Acts 7 and 8, when Stephen was being stoned, we find that Paul stood there. Let me read it for you. At the end of chapter 7 in Acts, starting in verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Paul, or Saul, excuse me. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's Stephen. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That was Stephen dying, right? The first martyr. And in chapter 8 of Acts, verse 1, here's what it says. And Saul approved of his execution. Saul was standing there and saying, yep, kill him. I'm glad he died. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Is that the same Paul? He sought to destroy the church. 
the people of God. Now, according to this letter to the Thessalonians, he loved the church. He showed a selfless love now. But it's no credit to Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That was Paul. And it's no credit to him, but it's a credit to the one who saved him. You see, Paul was chasing hell until one day Jesus chased him and saved him. And that's selfless love. Selfless love is a selfless act by a sinless savior to save a sinful people. Say that three times fast. Selfless love is a selfless act by a sinless savior to save a selfish people. The greatest persecutor of Christians became the greatest missionary to the nations, all because Jesus chased him down. So take heart, dear friends. Paul was only, to, only able to lead and love the church in Thessalonica because Jesus Christ loved him first. That's what the gospel did to the most chief of sinners, and that's what the gospel can do to you. So there is hope. The gospel allows us to love, to share our own selves, to share our own resources, our homes, our hearts with one another. And so that image, selfless love, is like a mother who sacrifices so much for her child and like a father who teaches his, love, his child to love the Lord. Paul is defending himself by saying, this is how I see you, not only as a people, but as my family. I once used to kill you guys, but now I love you. Paul's selfless love is on display, but again, it points to the selfless act in Jesus Christ. Are you able to be a selfless, to be selfless like this, Gateway? It's really a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for our leaders. But not, not only do we find a selfless love, but we find a laboring love, a laboring love. Look at verse nine. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. In other words, Paul is saying, this is not a, self, a surface type of love, okay? But this is love in action. Love in action is they were dragged out of Philippi and continue on, to Thessalonica. That's love in action. I mean, would you go on to minister to another town after what Paul experienced in Philippi? I mean, honestly, I think some of us would retreat. Not, that's okay. I'm just saying. We need to be honest with ourselves in, in saying, how does laboring love look like? How does selfless love look like? And we talked about this before, but in addition to self-sacrificing labor of love, he did not take advantage of them. And what does it say about their conduct? What does it say about Paul and Silas in their conduct? It says they were holy, they were righteous and blameless. Paul was like a, a mother, was gentle like a mother and firm like a father, teaching or exhorting them toward the gospel growth. Now, take a step back for a moment. 
This is what gospel ministry entails. Gospel ministry for all of us entails leading with love and not strong-arming or intimidating our people. That's the beauty of this passage. You can minister with boldness while showing authenticity, but love with a gospel-driven love only enabled by Jesus Christ himself. Let me conclude with the last part of our verse this morning. Like I mentioned in verse 12. Verse 12, we exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul is using that phrase to call you as a believer, to call us as a believer, to live a life that is worthy of the God who calls us. Now, this phrase right here is very important. He talks about it all the time. Now think about this. In the book of Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, if you recall the outline, the outline goes something like this. Chapters one to three, it's, it's doctrine and theology. We call it indicatives or what Christ has done in Ephesians. In, in, in chapters four through six, it's about faith or practice. It's the imperatives, right? So this is what Christ has done. Now this is what you must do now. That's kind of the outline of Ephesians. And so when Paul gets to Ephesians 4.1, he says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, calling, of the calling to which you have been called. Do we see the parallel with verse 12? Now, look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There it is again. Does that sound familiar? Look at Colossians 1.10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. There it goes again. So to the Thessalonians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, he's using similar language as he exhorts them to live the Christian life. I mean, do we follow the theme here? But there's more. There's more. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 5 that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. If you go down more, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy. And so all these verses about walking in a manner worthy of God. It's important to Paul, therefore it should be important to us. What does walk in a manner worthy of God mean? Well, as Christians, we are to live in such a way that what we believe fits into how we live. Note the other words in this verse, kingdom, kingdom. Who, that's God, calls you into his own kingdom. Now, Think about this for a moment. The, 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 the Thessalonians were living under an earthly kingdom at the time. Let me read to you Acts chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. It says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason received them. Now listen here. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, 
Jesus. So this is why this is important, okay? Follow me here. In a culture at the time where Caesar reigns in the earthly kingdom and all the people live according to Caesar, here's what Paul is doing. Paul is reminding the churches that there is only one king, one kingdom, one ruler, and they are to live, Christians, the church, they are to live in a manner worthy of that king who is Jesus Christ. Therefore, as we live the Christian life, we are to have really this kingdom mindset. Now, the other word here is glory. Glory. Paul's not only saying to have a kingdom mindset, but to know where your glory is. He's talking to the church. And the, the calling is to live for the praise of God's glory. In other words, live knowing where your treasure is. Live knowing where your real treasure is. So the question is, are you living your life, life as if your real treasure is in the one who called you? Let me go back to verse six in our text. Look at Paul. He references back in verse six, nor did we seek glory from people. The accusation against Paul was that he was living for his own glory to what he could get out of the church in Thessalonica. But as we all know too well, he didn't seek praise or honor or the approval of man. The greatest approval he had was from God. And that's all Paul needed to live, to lead and live in light of his coming. So I ask you, dear church, where is your treasure? Will we seek to live with boldness, with authenticity, with love? Will we live knowing who our king is, knowing that this is not our kingdom, but our kingdom is yet to come, while living for only his approval, for God's glory? Let, us, let that be in upon our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, this text is all but a reminder for us that you are the great leader. You are really our king, and we follow your lead. Paul is a great example for us to follow, to follow with boldness, with authenticity, with love. And so, Lord, as we just ponder and just let our minds sort of marinate in the text, we pray, Father, that we think through these questions in terms of leadership, but also in terms of our own character, our own faith, and how we live the Christian life. There's so many things to think about, and so we pray. And we also take heart that you could save just who Paul was before, thinking of the life of sin that he was living, killing Christians, persecuting Christians. Yet you soften his heart through your gospel. And so we pray now, Lord, for any of us here, that you will soften our hearts towards your gospel that we will turn about our wicked ways and follow you so that we could taste that sweet, sovereign grace of the gospel. May you continue to be with us as a church. May you be with our leaders, our elders, our, our leadership team. May we follow your lead. May we stand in bold proclamation of the gospel. And may you carry us home through that. Lord, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. All these things we ask in your name. Amen.